Thank you all. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, this is a very nice place to come to. It's a, a special environment, and I've made, um, I've made really good friends here over the years, and um, I'm really grateful for that. So I'm, I'm happy to be back here, um, despite all of United Airlines' attempts to prevent that from happening, <laughs> which were a lot of them. <laughs> um, I thought, I thought I would read the title story from the new collection, and um, <clears throat> it is called Funny Once. This year, on the anniversary of their first date, Phoebe had said to Ben, you know, now I've been with you longer than I wasn't with you. And he had found that wonderful. Not only the fact, the 20 years with, trumping the 19 years without, but Phoebe's having kept track. Prisoners also kept track, Phoebe did not say. Her not finding it wonderful was the problem between them. She couldn't be happy. Not happy then, not happy now. She hated Houston, yet she'd also hated Boulder. Before hating Boulder, she'd hated Austin, where they'd met. She had been raised by critics, pessimists. She was genetically disposed. Ben knew by heart the long, vast list of what she hated, her unhappiness at the top, and then other more minor things, including her parents, those progenitors, her paranoia, her pessimism, herself, and herself's inability to imagine anything but the worst-case scenario. Stop reading, Ben had ordered her, exasperated. Quit going to school. Get off the internet. No more paranoid phone calls from your dad. Everything you do just makes it worse. The lectures and research, the sad art and sadder science. Novels, newspapers, textbooks, her father's conspiracy theories, all of it evidence of a dismal downward trend. She was highly credentialed and disillusioned. That very morning, Phoebe had found her car in the drive with a flat tire, and Ben, naturally, was gone on some long, salubrious run. Fucking hell, she had said to the vehicle. Her father had long ago told her that an impenetrable rubber had been invented, but that tire companies were on purpose withholding the product. That's how they get you, was his mantra. Doomed to be late to her first appointment with a new therapist, Phoebe hadn't been able to trust the tattooed man who had suddenly appeared in the street, this large menacing stranger in his Cabinet of Wonders panel van, suspiciously well prepared for a problem such as hers. People are generally good, Ben often instructed her. The man had changed her destroyed tire in a matter of minutes, the lug wrench a blur in his meaty hands, the spare donut tossed about like a toy. From the ruined rubber, he had removed the blade tip of an exacto knife, presenting it to her like a gemstone held between his thick, begrimed fingertips. Ben couldn't talk Phoebe out of believing that the man had been the one to stab it there in the first place. Like the arsonist, who's also the fire chief, she said. He had facial tattoos, those kill somebody teardrops. I just know he was casing our place. I wrote down his license plate number so you can tell the cops when you come home someday and find me all slashed up. 
She abruptly lowered the passenger seat to recline, put her feet on the dashboard. They were in Ben's car, the one she called the penis mobile. She hated it, too, and thought Ben was neither young enough nor old enough to be driving it. Plus, she hated rush hour, as well as the sudden, sodden spring humidity. She also hated that they were headed to dinner at his friend's, the two Louises, which was a monthly ritual. But most of all, she hated the fact that tonight she did not have her usual sport bottle of gin and tonic in the car console. The therapist had suggested she stop drinking. This was all she had told Ben so far about her session. He had immediately volunteered to also quit drinking. Solidarity, he had said, making a fist and offering his knuckles for her to bump. Big of you, she had said, and watched him with satisfaction flush red. They had been very, very high and drunk when he'd accidentally lit her hair on fire. That had been last weekend. A wake-up call, they named it afterward, tending the blister on her scalp, trimming away the singe. There had been other wake-up calls, a bloody spill on the sidewalk, a trip the wrong way down a one-way street, and then some ensuing forgetfulness, a sort of mutual snooze button. But the burst of heat near her eyes, the alarming pungency of charred hair, the image of her head topped by that wavering flame reflected in the window over the kitchen sink just before Ben shot her with the spray nozzle. May was always a bad month, and this one was no exception. First, Ben's old band, the Brutes, had finally, finally gotten their big break, nine years after Ben had quit. As usual, he and Phoebe had shown up for the release party back in January, had driven over to Austin and slept on a futon, sprung for two of the cheap domestic kegs, wandered the loft space, poking gentle fun, Ben feeling sincerely pleased for and modestly superior to his old bandmates, and they vaguely chagrined by the low-budget look of their CD, if not also by the gray in their ponytails, their ragged concert shirts, and the faded state of their fan base. Ben's latest replacement on drums was the hostile 15-year-old son of the lead guitarist. Leaving the party, Ben had drunkenly thanked Phoebe for talking him into quitting the group. Now everything had turned around. Instead of being a motley crew of losers who'd refused to move on, the Brutes had become the lucky performers of a high-rotation single with a replete backlog ready-made to reissue. I can hear my influence, Ben insisted every time he heard Wally's gone AWOL, jacking the bass to emphasize his point. And then he couldn't help adding that Wally had been his basset hound way back in high school, the lost dog who'd inspired the song. He missed his band in Austin. Houston skyline made of high-rise did not compare this, I'm sorry, They'd come here because it was their hometown. They had family here. They'd moved back because Ben's old college roommate, Louise, could get him a job. He'd shaved off his beard and put away his boots, making the best of it. Now he wrote grants and received a percentage. You're good at begging, Phoebe told him. I'm a professional idealist, he would claim. 
Don't do it, she warned as Ben reached for the car radio. That's just what we don't need right now. You're right, you're right, he said, sighing. It was the brute success that had led to the long night with a pipe to the fire on her head. I freaking named that band. I know, and the dog. Ask me what the therapist asked me. What'd she ask you? He. He asked me if my husband demanded rough sex. What? I know. Right after what brings you here today and me going, I'm terminally unhappy, he asks about rough sex. A strange opening gambit. Phoebe hadn't mentioned marriage, husband, sex, or violence. She had thought terminal unhappiness might sound sufficiently suicidal. She had looked down, frowning at her clothing, to see if something about it had led to his strange question, then thought perhaps he had mistaken her for another patient, that scrawny young girl in the waiting room, for example, the one cleaning her teeth with a business card. Maybe because of the scarf, you think? Like I tie you to the bed with it? Gag you? Mentioning the scarf made her head suddenly itch. She used both hands and scrubbed the whole apparatus angrily. In public, she had taken to using the stems of her glasses to poke beneath and scratch. Undone paper clips, plastic forks. The good news was that her hair appeared to be all growing back, the prickly stubble of uniform coverage, no permanent reminder of what had gone wrong. After they'd extinguished the flame, Ben had marveled at its swift uptake. I have had a few mishaps, he said, mostly just eyebrows or knuckle hairs. But wow, that was extreme. Product, Phoebe had informed him. I think my moose is made of napalm. But maybe she was simply more volatile than he. Laid back, people labeled him. He's not my husband, she had finally replied to the therapist, which wasn't even the beginning of a coherent answer. How do you self-medicate came next. So he did know a thing or two about her, after all. She recited in daily chronological order. Caffeine, Prozac, nicotine, white wine, Adderall, red wine, vodka, nicotine, Xanax, Valium. Occasionally Coke, she added, if it's a gift. He was writing on his yellow tablet and pot under duress. He did not seem shocked, but then again, he'd asked about rough sex. Let's start with the alcohol, her new therapist said. The only good part about dinner with the Louises is the drinking, Phoebe complained as Ben whipped the penis mobile into their drive and engaged the handbrake. She hated how he set that brake, some piece of smug punctuation. Through the large plate glass window, she saw their hostesses, Wheezy and LL, they were called, nicknames they'd adopted when they had hooked up, awaiting them. The matronly elder, Wheezy, wearing a condescending smile and her apron, and LL, the ingenue, with her chin lifted, hands on her hips, tongue stuck out. This is the last time I'm going in that house. You always say that, Ben said cheerfully, collecting the flowers they had brought tonight instead of the usual wine. Phoebe turned the car's rearview mirror to check her scarf. Yeah, but this time I mean it. In her relationship with Ben, Phoebe had been the ingenue once upon a time, young, winsome, on display. She understood the rules. Couples bent this way. 
the one who not only tolerated but adored the outrageousness of the other, and the one who would fall headlong into a chasm if the other weren't there to hang on. She and LL had in common the fact that they were not the smitten. They had taken up with surrogate parents, fallen into the buoyed, fathomless atmosphere of those people's unconditional love. The Louise's place smelled of all its complicated and competing contents, children, old man, art studio, dogs, cats, cooking food, wet hair, moldering basement. The aesthetic was chaos, riot, extreme. They hosted dinner every Friday evening, and their guests were various, colleagues, neighbors, relatives, stragglers. Their home was one where you might be greeted with the information that the pet snake was loose, or that an intervention was soon going to be staged. Ben had been the elder Louise's, Wheezy's, roommate long ago at UT. Now he was godfather to her two children. He was godfather, but Phoebe was not godmother. In the instance of the two Louise's untimely demise, Ben would be the official parent. And what was Phoebe's part supposed to be? It's statistically practically impossible that they'd both die, Ben consoled her. Actually, she said, it's 100% certain they'll die. At the same time, he amended. Phoebe often wondered what the younger Louise, L.L., had demanded in return for bearing those two babies. She had not been a happy pregnant person. She had resented the sacrifice of body and bad habits. And as a mother, she seemed diffident, maybe even jealous, usurped. The spankies, Phoebe called the kids, grimy cherubs and saggy diapers, uncivilized, as lovely as their biological mother, blindly beloved by their other. L.L. wore a halter top and a long skirt, costumed tonight like a belly dancer. The raw onion odor of her sweat was not quite covered by the fruity oil she had smeared on her skin. Younger than the rest of the adults, she moved around the house as if preparing for an upcoming performance, dance or gymnastic, or maybe settling for a nap, head tipping sideways, arms reaching behind her back, feet flexing. You could not not attend to her half-closed eyes, her jutted breasts, her small, satisfied smile at physical pleasure, a little creak of pop, the audible sigh. Cat-like, she preened, self-contained yet watchful. And like a cat's, her attention was suddenly riveted by novelty. That scarf is fabulous, she said. Not too, Aunt Jemima, Phoebe asked. Before presenting the bouquet of sunflowers to Wheezy, Ben knelt and handed a single heavy stalk to each of her nearly naked children. They ran away, slapping the floor with the flowers' faces. Ben followed with his eyes. He wanted a baby. Before that, he had wanted to get married. Desire for what he wasn't going to get led him to reach for his shirt pocket, where he had tucked his iPod. He was tempted to spring Wally's gone AWOL and Wheezy now. He was dying to share his outrage with his old sympathetic friend. No, Phoebe said, and his hand dropped automatically. The Louises exchanged a surprised glance. Later, okay? Old friend Wheezy had advised Ben not to date Phoebe back when. Phoebe's grudge against her, therefore, felt bulletproof. She's cold, Wheezy had told Ben, tears in her eyes. She's selfish. But too bad, what Wheezy thought. 
Ben loved her. He couldn't be talked out of it. And when Wheezy had asked him to be the sperm donor for LL's pregnancies, Phoebe had been pleased to announce that she wasn't comfortable with such an arrangement. If she was going to be accused of coldness, she might as well meet out an icicle now and again. Everyone made for the kitchen table, that official hub of this casual universe. At the stove stood Wheezy's grandfather, Chow Pep, Ben called to the old man, who was mostly deaf and did not speak English. Chow Bellas, he rasped in reply. Bent with some degenerative back condition into a nearly perfect right angle, he had to turn his head to give them a glance and smile. His physiognomy was geological, one unique formation patched upon another. He had relocated from Florence when his wife had died. You'd think it had been yesterday, so tragic did he seem, broken in half as if kicked in the crotch. He next navigated so as to gaze upon his granddaughter as if she were the only thing he continued to live for. Perhaps she was. By habit, Phoebe aimed for the sink to wash her hands. In the window glass above it, she surprised herself with her reflection, that bundle of cloths she had tied upon her head. Superimposed in another kitchen window, she stood aflame, woman in the glass like a burning torch. She shuddered involuntarily, then turned off the water and patted her hands dry on the wrap. Bonus, she said to Ben, who was watching. It's a fabulous scarf, L.L. repeated, studying the thing with a curious smile, extending a martini glass filled with icy pink liquid. No thanks, Phoebe said, swallowing palpable desire. Just water. You hate water, L.L. said. The story Ben had proposed was a bad dye job, a cosmetic disaster brought about by economic hardship. Phoebe still temping, still attending school in order to put off student loan repayment, all leading to home hair maintenance rather than professional, a lesson learned. Ben contributing by misreading the instructions, middle-aged eyesight, ha, ha, ha. Also, Phoebe had warned him, you are forbidden to say that I can rock baldness. Dinner was a hodgepodge. L.L. did not eat food that had once had a face, and the children, for now, agreed to only the color orange. Pep required Mediterranean essentials, pork, cheese, tomatoes, olives. The neighbor, sad sack Dennis, hapless bachelor, had shown up with a foil tray of raw venison. Just the kind of offering he frequently made, something that looked like a gift but was actually a demand for labor, if not an outright insult to the vegetarian in the house. Regardless, Wheezy, aggressively amenable, accommodated all of these quibbling, truculent whims, perhaps even encouraged them. She needed her own orphanage or halfway house, Phoebe thought. This mob of only mildly needy people, this call for the simplest service and goodwill, this was hardly a challenge to somebody whose reserves had only begun to be tapped. Because of the kids' daycare, they all clasped hands around the table and mumbled a prayer. L.L. took Phoebe's right hand, Ben her left. Each gave her an extra squeeze. Under the glow of a drink or two, Phoebe liked flirting with L.L. Sober, it seemed vaguely pathetic. Ah, Pep declared, as he always did after taking his first delighted bite. She's going to get dumped, Phoebe had predicted to Ben concerning Wheezy. It hurt Ben's feelings that Phoebe could only see impending disaster. 
and he had been stricken when she had suggested Wheezy ought to be warned. Two children and an aged immigrant grandfather weren't enough to prevent devastation. They wouldn't stop the likes of somebody like L.L. The four-year-old child now insisted that her new name was Potion. Hello, Potion, said Ben gamely. Why Potion, asked Phoebe. Why not Zippo or Sparky or Spanky? Spanky, said her little sister, Spanky. Dennis's lions were stolen, L.L. said. We've been driving around hunting for them. I thought something looked missing over there, said Ben. Goddamn juvenile delinquents, said Dennis, right off the front porch. But really, why aren't those little freaks at home watching TV where they're supposed to be? They ought to be shot, Phoebe said. You have a gun. Wheezy was translating the conversation for her grandfather, who offered his hoarse opinion that it wouldn't be teenagers who stole decorative statuary. Goddamn, said the two-year-old around her gummy cheddar cube. Goddamn. I agree, not kids, said L.L. Kids would have thrown the lions in the swimming pool or through a car window. It was a homeowner. Someone stole my grandmother's gravestone, Wheezy explained, Pep continuing on about the abomination. There's a black market for re-engraving them, she went on. He finished murmuring, either a curse or a prayer. In another language, it was hard to tell. You know what, asked Potion. People on TV don't watch TV. You know what else, Phoebe said. People in books don't read books. That's right, said L.L. But it's better in books when people don't read books than it is on TV when they don't watch TV. Why? Because the book is always better. And since she'd been drinking, L.L. had to repeat the line three times, delighted with herself, showing her teeth and her smooth throat as she laughed. Phoebe made a mental note in case she went back to drinking. It's only funny once. Wheezy spent dinner jumping up and retrieving food from the stove or refrigerator, filling glasses, bending to interpret the demands of her grandfather or children. Martyr, Phoebe thought. Ben would be thinking, saint. It was sort of the same thing, wasn't it? While L.L. relished the attention garnered by being desirable, Wheezy relished that garnered by being helpful. Just because she was generous didn't mean she wasn't also just as narcissistic. At least L.L. was beautiful. Another insight Phoebe probably ought not to share with Ben. The odor of searing venison made everyone lift their noses and widen their eyes at once, like a herd of startled animals. The two dogs, forbidden in the kitchen during meals, entered nonetheless. What is that bad smell, the four-year-old asked her mother. Bambi, L.L. replied, a harmless woodland creature. The children's spoons clattered into their plates. They turned horrified faces to Wheezy, the mother who did not tease. Dennis barked out a laugh. You sure tickle me, he said to L.L., rising to evaluate the smoking meat. Funny thing is, it did come from out near the woodlands, ran right into my buddy's truck on 45 North. You should see his grill. Dennis had been slow to realize that his neighbors were a couple. He had guessed that L.L. was Wheezy's daughter, Pep Wheezy's father, the household composed of several generations of single parents. Dennis had been under an inexplicable delusion that L.L. would someday return his leering admiration. It was Ben who had been charged with setting him straight. Over a beer on the deck some past Friday communal dinner night, no shit, he kept saying. No shit. 
Pep, he yelled now from the stove. You want yourself some of this Woodlands roadkill? Drunk, Phoebe was not depressed by this monthly dinner. Drunk, she would even consent to sitting on the floor with the spankies, stacking some tiresome blocks or dreaming up dialogue for the stuffed toys. Drunk, she moved through it as through sleep, vague snippets later recalled like pieces of dreams. Sober, and time seemed unforgiving, unmoving. Sober, she could barely contain nausea when considering Pep's distorted arthritic hands and blue-veined skull hanging there over his plate. All the fingers are for something, Potion said. She held up her thumb. Sucking, said Phoebe. Masturbating, she would have gone on, of the pointer. Next, rage. Then, wedding rings. And, finally, a little pinky for cleaning out the ear. A handful of assistants. She used her pinky now to scratch at her stubbly temple. Why is that on your head? Potion asked her. To protect the fleas, answered Phoebe. Potion then fashioned her own little messy turban of her napkin, and then she made one for her sister, and everyone else was charmed. How Phoebe pined for a drink. As usual, she and L.L. would walk the dogs while the others took a turn cleaning up. Dishes, pans, babies, pep. Naughty, they walked around the block smoking camels. Drunk, Phoebe would have been exchanging complaints with L.L. about their partners, stumbling on the live oak roots, cursing the wayward tangle of the dogs on their leashes, lamenting Houston's muggy intimations of the summer to come. Tonight, she asked L.L.'s opinion about the man who had fixed her tire. This therapist I went to said there were three ways to look at any situation, Phoebe told her. He'd said, a man fixes your tire, no attitude whatsoever, just a straight description of what happened. And then Phoebe had said to the therapist, but he was too well prepared to be some random Dudley do-right. At which point the therapist had said, a man sabotages your vehicle in order to then rescue you. So I go, right, exactly. I wouldn't have trusted him either, LL said. No fucking way. Who would? But then the therapist tells me, you have a need to see him as bad. That's part three. I need to see him as bad. Wait, what? I know. That's nuts, right? I mean, sometimes people are just bad, right? LL now went off on a long complaint about a gallery owner who had first encouraged her to submit her work there and then became completely uninterested when he discovered she wouldn't consent to date him. Her stories frequently went this way. People with whom she flirted made a pass at her. Drunk, Phoebe generally ignored the juvenile tiresomeness of LL's ensuing indignation, her youthful self-righteous belief that she could have it both ways. Sober, however, she was thinking about what had most baffled her about the whole baffling appointment this morning, which was that at the end of it, the therapist declined to take her on as a client. He said he could not help her. He didn't seem even remotely embarrassed to admit it, nor did he seem to think Phoebe should feel offended. All along, she thought she was auditioning him, but apparently not. On the way home, she tried to construct the same trilogy he had about the tattooed fix-it fellow. The therapist declines to treat me. The therapist doesn't like me. But what was the third part? If only she'd stuck around long enough to ask. 
To deflect from either further discussing her own business with LL or acknowledging that she hadn't been listening to LLs, Phoebe moved on to Ben's. So this lame-ass band he was in back in the day? On the deck steps, LL had breath mints and hand sanitizer for them both to hide the smell of cigarette smoke. Hold on, hold on, she said, reaching for Phoebe's head. Your flea cover is slipping. Phoebe wasn't quick enough to keep her from touching the exposed skin above her ear. You shaved your head? Chemotherapy, Phoebe said. In her mind, she went to the image of herself in the kitchen window, unnatural, emblematic. Tears were easy now. Colon cancer, no hair, no drinking, she shrugged. LL dropped the dog's leashes in order to embrace Phoebe. Oh my God, she said, holy shit. I'll be fine, Phoebe told her, really. And don't tell Wheezy till later, okay? Ben and I are so sick of talking about it. I can't believe you didn't tell us. It'll be fine. In her arms, Phoebe felt the pleasure of being brave. Maybe this was the solution to unhappiness. Inside, they found Dennis and Pep sharing a single plate of meat, eating with greasy hands as the dishwasher rotor thumped repeatedly on some tall utensil. And Ben in the steamy bathroom, sitting on the toilet while Wheezy knelt over the tub. She wore earbuds, listening to the offending song, stirring the two children around in the water. The sunflowers were in there also, their faces bedraggled, their hairy stalks bent. It's great, she yelled. Sounds just like the old days. See, Ben said to LL and Phoebe in the bathroom doorway, that's my band. Wally was my dog. LL gave Phoebe a sympathetic pout, then lowered herself gracefully next to Wheezy, plucking one of the earbuds out to insert in her ear, their two heads together there over the splashing naked children. Chemotherapy? Ben forced a laugh, as if Phoebe had been leading to a punchline. They drove through Houston's surface and back streets by habit, avoiding the freeways, although neither had had any liquor tonight. The traffic lights were synchronized, a pathway of green that would suddenly begin turning yellow, coming at them in a flashing row. Inebriated, this was a sensation like an invitation to flight. Overhead, the clouds broke around the highest high-rises, swift and ethereal. The sharpness of detail impressed Phoebe, the absence of blurred edges, impressed and depressed her. Unaltered reality was monotonous, predictable, and very slow. She would remember every part of tonight, tomorrow, but so what? I thought we were going with the hair dye story. They had stayed at the Louise's through the elaborate process of bedtime, the hugs and crying and book reading, foul herbal tea in lieu of the usual whiskey, and Ben's walking Dennis next door to stare at the two spots on the porch where the lions had sat, Pep's oxygen hookup and nighttime meds, LL's marijuana, which could only come out when the neighbor and the children and their great-grandfather were safely tucked away. The four remaining gathered in LL's art studio, sitting knee-to-knee -knee there on paint-splattered wicker furniture for the shared bowl. They all knew Phoebe didn't enjoy weed, but tonight LL held the pipe out to her. You probably have nausea, she said on an inhaled breath, then slapped her hands over her mouth. Wheezy guessed, pregnant? And Ben simply looked blank. 
I'm sorry, L.L. murmured, though Phoebe didn't believe it had been an accident. She was a troublemaker herself. She might have done the same. I told L.L. about the cancer and chemo, Phoebe said apologetically to Ben. You have to tell them you were joking, he said now. Take it back, he had texted from the bathroom then. What if I don't? Then you're either crazy or a liar, he said. You can tell them the truth, Phoebe said. How about that? What was wrong with the hair dye? In the end, it just seemed too boring. Boring and also a lie, by the way. If I tell them the truth, he couldn't seem to finish the thought. We could say you pulled my hair out while we were having rough sex. But really, Phoebe, we can't go around saying you have cancer. Drunk, they'd have been proceeding home as if through a video game, alert to the sudden challenge of a darting cat or unlighted bicyclist, the obstacles that could catch and doom you. Sober, he sighed, and Phoebe ground her teeth, sitting there the perfect picture of disgruntlement, stubbornness, self-loathing. There's another option, she said. We could never see or speak to them again. For a long moment, he was speechless, Honestly, that's what you want? I don't know what I want, she said. What do you want? Sobriety might have explained what happened next, or maybe Phoebe's simple question. At any rate, they went sailing through a stop sign. Drunk, they'd never have missed such a predictable snag. Several things happened simultaneously. Ben stomped on the brakes, 50 feet too late, causing an empty X-Acto knife to fly from the center console and land at Phoebe's feet. Also, he instinctively threw his hand out across her chest, that useless parental gesture to protect the nowadays non-existent child in the passenger seat. Wow, Ben sat blinking, stopped in the middle of the empty street. No cars, no witnesses, no cops or lights or cameras. No consequences, it seemed. Maybe, Phoebe thought, he'd have run that same sign drunk and they'd not have noticed the fact. It was complicated to sort out the variables. She'd always found that to be true. Life was so little like a science experiment and so much like a cluttered drawer where you tossed things just to get them out of sight. That really hurt, she finally noted, putting her own hand where Ben's had slammed into her at her left breast, right about where her heart probably was. Thank you.